Hey, I'm John. And I'm Becky. And this is the We Are For Good podcast. Nonprofits are faced with more challenges to accomplish their missions and the growing pressure to do more, raise more, and be more for the causes that improve our world. We're here to learn with you from some of the best in the industry, bringing the most innovative ideas, inspirational stories, all to create an impact uprising. So welcome to the good community. We're nonprofit professionals, philanthropists, world changers, and rabid fans who are striving to bring a little more goodness into the world. So let's get started. Welcome, welcome. Becky, what's happening? I'll tell you what's happening. We have got a treat for people today. Oh yeah. Buckle up, everybody. Because not only do we have an incredible topic that we are going to be diving into, of which I believe most of our listeners are probably like, what is that? (laughs) Um, (laughs) But it has such relatability to what you're doing in venture philanthropy. But we have an incredible soul, a kind human, just a brilliant doctoral sage who is going to walk <laughs> us through this. And we are so delighted to have Dr. Angela Jackson. She's the managing partner at New Profit, and she is going to talk to us about the power of venture philanthropy. And if you don't know what that is, and I have to say, I've only heard about it maybe in the last two to three years, so I'm definitely not on the innovator early adopter <laughs> side of this. Um, but I'm so excited to dive in, and I want to give a little bit of background about Dr. Jackson, but she is leading leading the venture philanthropy firm, which is amazing that they're a venture philanthropy firm's $15 million future of work initiative to invest in entrepreneurs and companies that are really developing innovative technical solutions um, to upskill which I really love that we've been talking about upcycling, upskill, low income and entry level workers at scale, which is so incredible. She is literally going into low income areas. She is getting people trained and getting them into a livable wage and breaking the poverty cycle, which is something we are deeply passionate about. And she recently launched this $6 million future of work grand challenge powered by XPRIZE and MIT Solve. Anytime you have MIT in there, you know it's the most (laughs) genius thing ever. And so they are rapidly reskilling 25,000 displaced workers into living wage jobs in the next 24 months. Thank you so much for doing that, Dr. Jackson. And so this is really where she has been spending her career and just creating, like closing this gap for these low individuals with low income backgrounds. She's got her doctorate. She has been in CNN or been featured in CNN, Huffington Post, Harvard Business Review, I mean, and now that we are some, good podcast. oh yeah, I mean that's really the <laughs> pinnacle of of her career right now. So, I, I mean, it's just all to say awesome we have honor. a living legend here, and we are so excited that you are on the show, Dr. Jackson. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you, thank you, and I was so excited to hear that you all are in Oklahoma. You know, being a Midwest girl myself, so yes. World. Oh, thank we you. Yes. Uh, Dr. Jackson's from outside of Chicago. So there's a little shout out for all our Chicagoans listening right now. But I'm really just kind of curious about your background. How did you, you have this journalism broadcast uh, background from the University of Missouri. So whoop, go Tigers. Um, and, and tell us how that kind of led you to where you are today and give us a little bit of background on your journey. 
Yeah, you know, I went to journalism school when I applied you know, out of uh, high school. I was very interested in telling stories of people who were doing well um, despite the odds. And I would always go into the newsroom with my like, happy story. I'd say, you know, this is this woman that was in poverty and she was on welfare. And now she started this business in her community to do X, Y, Z. And I'd go in with my happy-go-lucky story. And they'd say, oh, Angela, someone just got hit by a car. Go, go. <laughs> <laughs> Go out and, and shoot that and we can do your story tomorrow. And that would happen time and time again. And what I realized was like when I got into news, I just wanted to tell the story of all the good that was happening in the world. There's always something bad to tell a story about. But like, let's talk about the things that are going right, that give people hope, that give models. And so that idea of narrative and storytelling has always been like, um, one of my passions. The second thing is having impact. You know, I knew that if I was able to tell those stories, that maybe people would want to donate to these organizations or they'd want to help. And, you know, many times people say, I want to help, you know, where do I start? Like, I wanted to give people a place to start. So fast forward, um, I started my own organization global language project that was based in New York City. And we work with school districts nationwide to help launch and create world language programs. So kids could start learning a second language as early as five years old. And, and the idea behind that was twofold. One is that we wanted these kids who are living in these areas where they never usually leave 10 to 15 blocks to know that there's a world bigger than their neighborhood. The second thing is, you know, at that time I was working in an international job at Nokia and I was traveling all over and I saw the power of, you know, having a second or third language, right? It really connected you to people. It helped everything in my job when I could speak the language. And when I didn't, I could see the barriers. You know, I was doing work in uh, China and had translators and I'd talk and I'd talk for like, literally like five minutes and the translator would say something and like she ended in like one minute and like I'm not in my head and I'm like I know I said more than that like I'm like she, she like nods at me to go forward I'm like oh I'm not <laughs> but you really don't know right and so I thought gosh what if we could grow, grow this next group of like global citizens who have like cultural competencies who have languages that are highly sought after in the world of work you know, what if we could do this at the earliest age? And from there, I was started fundraising. Like I went from this corporate world to fundraising from Global Language Project. And I have to tell you, I felt like I had a doctoral degree in nonprofits after that. I mean, when you start up an organization, you think we do it because we see a need and we're passionate about it as a social entrepreneur. That doesn't necessarily mean that money will follow, right? right? And so for me, I really wanted to try to learn how to crack this net of philanthropy, to understand how we have more effective philanthropy. And how do we give entrepreneurs, especially the ones who are solving for issues in their, their neighborhoods, how do we give them license, funds to actually realize those ideas based on their lived experience? And from what I saw in my vantage seat, not a lot approximate entrepreneurs were being funded. And so I decided that after founding an organization, I wanted to go on the other side to see if I could help help influence how dollars invested. John? Oh my goodness. I 
I'm sorry, I need to tender my resignation to We Air for Good <laughs> because I'm going to go be an intern for Dr. Jackson because I back. love this Ugh. project. This is really wholesome. And it's on, honestly kind of like what we did. I mean, we spent our whole lives in the nonprofit sector. And it's like, how do you, and we, and we built this for-profit company, you know, that is, you to know, serve. Yeah, yeah, to serve and, and to grow. And so I really am just heartened by that story. It was beautiful. I, I loved it. I mean, I could geek out on so many different directions. Um, but I would love to dive into this topic of venture philanthropy with you because I don't think it's talked about enough, at least maybe in the Midwest, in our circles here. And I just think, you know, one of my most favorite books is The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek. And I'm going back through it. And I just, that ideal of that, we are pulling for something much bigger than this year's profit, this year's shareholders. You were just speaking that language of like, let's, there's creative ways to fund different things and to get different people at the table because we're all trying to propagate good, you know, lift that in the world. And so, will you kind of walk, you know, start at the base level and explain venture philanthropy to our audience? And then I totally want to dive in on all the things that New Profit's doing in that space. Absolutely. So, New Profit was founded by Vanessa Kirsch, you know, over 20 years ago. And the insight that she had is, why don't like social entrepreneurs and social innovators have the access to capital that you would see for-profits have, right? And venture to actually scale their ideas. And she thought not only was it about the funding, which is unrestricted, like when a VC gives a entrepreneur money, they don't say how much is it programmatic? How much is it going to be capacity building? They trust that they are the experts in knowing what to do to scale their business. So their their money doesn't come with those strings attached. That's number one. Number two, what we offer is like wraparound supports and understanding as a founder, as a leader, whether you're nonprofit or for-profit, it's a very lonely process, right? Especially when you're making some really serious decisions. Do I go to a, a new site, a new city? Do I go deeper? Do I go wider? And so what we also supply is what we call a deal partner that works as a thought partner with the entrepreneur around these issues of scale, thinking about their programmatic issues and also thinking about their own development, right? And I think as nonprofit leaders, we're sometimes the last folks to get that development because like there's not money for it, right? You, You pay everyone else, you get them development. And if the ED has anything left over, maybe they'll consider doing something for themselves. Um, most times not, because they know that if they do that, they have to raise it, right? And so we, you know, Vanessa saw, which I think is true today, that it's the money, it's the wraparound source, and it's the thought uh, supports, and it's that thought partnership can, that can take social enterprises to the next level. And in launching the Future Work Grand Challenge, we decided we don't know where those good ideas are going to come from. We think some of them will be from nonprofits. We think some of them will be for for profits. And so what we realize is that even now, fast forward 20 years, we need to be more flexible with our capital to meet the entrepreneurs of the day and the goals that they're trying to achieve. Can you imagine, John, having someone give you a blind investment because they trust you they believe in your mission and they just say, I believe that you have the creative capacity to build something incredible here, go and do. And then the genius of bringing in someone that helps facilitate and guide that. Like, and and we believe that community is everything. And that Mm. is where the secret sauce is. I mean, when I, when I just think about adopting this mindset in nonprofit, it would literally revolutionize the sector. If we had this level of, 
adaptability. Yeah. And partnership. That's incredible. I think, you know, you kind of teed us up lovely with the future of work grant challenge. I would love to just go into that and hear, you know, what was the impetus for that? And then tell us some examples of how it's going. Yeah. So I have to tell you, um, a lot of folks think because we launched in June that it was like in reaction to COVID, but actually I'd been working on this two years before um, because one thing that most of us know is true. The people were hurting pre-pandemic were there. Like our our workforce system was not working for a lot of people. COVID has amplified that situation. And so what we did was we went out and interviewed employers, top employers, 50 top, um, like the Department of Defense, you know, you think, you know, your Walmart of the world and said, you know, what skills and talents do workers need to be successful in the future of work? Because one insight I had coming into the job, the future work seemed like very much like an upmarket conversation. It's like, how do you get, you know, middle wage workers to higher wages? I was thinking about what about the people who are not making, you know, a living wage today? Like, how do we get them to a living wage. Like in my mind, that's my future of work and that's what I'm interested in. And so in thinking about how do we incentivize people to talk about the folks who are living at the margins, who are you know at the bottom quartile of earnings, we thought we could use philanthropy, right? To incentivize innovators to think about this population because typically innovators don't because they don't see a customer on the other side. Their customers are employee, employers and these employers spend 80% plus of their dollars on professional development on the highest wage work workers. Mm-hmm. If you think about low wage workers or entry level workers, the training that they receive is more about compliance. And like, you know, are they compliance, rules, safety? That's pretty much it. And, and that has changed over the years. Back in the 70s, it's like um, employees got two and a half to three months professional development. It was really about upskilling them. And that's down to maybe a week now oh the average employee gets, and that's all compliance-based. I think what you are saying here is such a powerful thing that needs to be lifted that we're not investing in the front line. We're not investing in trying to help them develop and to become a more whole yeah. person. I love that you called out that it's about compliance because that's true. You know, it's like I've seen that in big organizations that they've got to check those boxes, but they're not actually investing in the people. And that would completely change the trajectory of our organizations by making that investment in everybody. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And and the way that we thought about it and putting together this grand challenge, which is really an experiment, thinking about who do we need at the table to really and, and what incentives do we need? to have people work together in a collaborative function on behalf of those workers. So part of the grand challenge is that we, you know, work with MIT Solves and XPRIZE to put together this challenge competition for innovators. Cause we want innovators to think about the folks who are living at the margins. And the incentive is, you know, you'll, you'll win $6 million, right? That's great incentive. Mm-hmm. But what we also did was we knew that for this to be sustainable, we needed to find a vehicle in those communities that they would partner with and could continue to work with. So we brought in workforce boards. We had over 20 boards apply. We selected six workforce boards. And so those innovators need to work with the job seekers who are coming through the door. You don't get to cherry pick which workers um, and help train and get at least 500 of those workers into jobs with living wages. Like that's the grand challenge to win $1.5 million. Um, 
that's great. But I think what I'm most excited about is this connection between the innovators and the job seekers, because sometimes, it, we, you know, living in Oklahoma, it's like the West Coast and the East Coast, they get all the interesting and innovative programs, right? And if there's some leftovers, they come to our cities. And it's like, how do we take these innovative training and opportunities to places where people might not get them, right? Take them directly to the workforce boards where, and it's, it's crazy to understand that literally workforce boards, they served one in 12 people in 2019. That was pre-pandemic. So a lot of folks are going there for resources, but sometimes they're just getting the same old training, same old training. Like what if we could give them some training that really inspires them, that's in demand right now and in demand based on employers who are in their area. Hey friends, we always say community is everything and we really believe it. This podcast is designed to start conversations, provide inspiration and hacks to help you do more for your mission but your voice is the one that's been missing at the table. That's why we've completely reimagined the We Are For Good community to serve you even better. We've created an exclusive online network for our listeners so you can connect with new friends, keep the conversations going and growing after every episode. And oh yeah, it's completely free. Think of this network as the after party for every podcast episode and a place to turn when you feel stuck or need help or feedback from others who have a passion for growing their nonprofit missions too. But friends, hear me, this only works with you included. So come on over, pull up a chair and join us. We can't wait to connect. It's free. Join us at weareforgood.com slash hello. See you inside. This is just so wholesome and heartwarming. And if I could be leaned in anymore, I would be eating my microphone because (laughs) it really is such an interesting topic. And there's so many verticals to it, at least when I think about it. And I think the key word that you've said here that is resonating with me is connectivity and and just making these connections and how important it is. And I just feel that, you know, the nonprofit sector and the way that it was set up is so handicapped in this way. We're not, you know, we're, we're kind of shamed if we have a big budget. We're not supposed to be pulling down big salaries. And it's like we almost stymie ourselves, our ability to scale, our ability to be creative. And you have thrown that playbook completely out of the window. Bravo for that. And, and you've really inspired something that's so creative. And it really reminds me of like one of the first venture capital uh, philanthropy ideas that I've heard of. And I, and I don't remember all the details around it, but it was my favorite philanthropist ever, Warren Buffett, who threw out like, I, I don't remember what it was, but it was like, I will give $250 million to anyone. And I, and I want to say the, the, the project that he wanted to take on was finding a way to get black women in urban areas areas, I want to say it was jobs or something like that. And they took all of these incredible people around the world who are entrepreneurs, innovators, and somebody came up with the most brilliant idea of how to solve that problem and how to pilot it in a city and then grow it. That is, that is the power of big thinking, of connectivity, and pulling sectors together. And you are doing that here. And, it, and I just have to give you the biggest props because you're bringing, you know, the brain power and the brain trust of MIT. You're bringing innovators. You're bringing the experts in, in, the, in the sector. And what you've made is something so incredible. And what I'm also hearing is you care so deeply about the one person who's going to be getting this on the back end. You don't want to just keep giving them the same training. You want to inspire them. You want to have them feel completely passionate and fulfilled in what they do. And that is how you break cycles. And I just, so anyway, all of that to say, 
I'm, I'm clapping for you right now because it's so brilliant. And, and I have a question that just made me think about how you're able to do this with a journalism background. I'm curious how you're using and leveraging storytelling and what you know about, I just think of like little Angela and her first job trying to, to create a network of good news, which by the way, when I was a kid, I wanted that too, like of just happy news and not like somebody got hit by a car. How are you using storytelling to take this, you know, to a global scale? Well, that's been the most um, fun for me. And like, it doesn't feel like work for me because it is my passion. And so one thing that we've done, we've also stood up a worker advisory board. You know, we've got 70 members who are currently, you know, searching for jobs. Many of them have been impacted by COVID. Um, All of them didn't make a living wage last year. And that's a partnership with Accenture and Goodwill. And what we've done with this advisory board is they're helping us select the entrepreneurs. So yes, we have our experts at you know MIT and judges, but we wanted real people who are experiencing a problem to help us like with this judging process. Um, the second thing that we do and we think a lot about is that with philanthropists, we have co-investors in this. So some of the large um, foundations like um, Google, like walmart.org, for example, Strata Education Network, down to you know Annie Casey Foundation, the Schultz Family Foundation. There's a number of them. Um, but we've brought them in because we know that this is a big problem that not one foundation or one philanthropy will like be able to fund themselves. It's radical collaboration. And for us, it's ter- telling stories is a big piece along the lines of what we're learning, what went right, what went wrong. And, you know, and I start out with the, just the story of myself. You know, I was raised in the Midwest. You know, my grandfather, by my grandparents, my grandfather worked at the local Chrysler factory. You know, I was the beneficiary of him having a blue collar good job. You know, we had medical insurance. You know, I was able to go to grad school. And what we know today is that that's not true. So basically what my grandfather was making in like 1975, if you do that for what people are making now, it's the same amount of money based on the count of the cost of living. And so when we think about that, it's like we went backwards instead of forwards. And so all of those factory workers who had good jobs, you know, family sustaining wages, they don't exist. And what what happens? Like you see the breakdown in communities, you know, I saw what happens when the factories left my community, right? Um, And so we can do better. Is, is, is just my passion. And I think we need to hear more real stories. So anytime I write, I write a Medium blog on Medium. Um, I tell the stories about this, this challenge and I'm writing about it. I tell the stories of workers, ones that have succeeded, ones that have just kept trying. And our advisory board is just, they blow me away all the time because they're going through their own challenges, right? Trying to find a job, trying to raise the homeschool, teach, <laughs> raise their children. <laughs> and they still volunteer their time because they want hope. You know, they want to be part of the solution. And um, like I said, they have the least amount of time to do this and they're giving the most. And so I try to tell their stories. We give space for them to tell their own stories through their writing, their experience with boards, their experience looking for jobs, just to make this real why this could be transformative in the lives of people. And I want to, I want to lift up and thank you for that because 
you know, as much as you and I want a happy news channel, that's not going to help us move the ball down the field. It is incumbent upon us to let the reality of what these workers are facing, let them tell their story, let them let us glimpse behind the curtain of what reality is like, because until we understand, we're not going to feel activated to want to go and improve. And so I think that humanizing that authenticity, that vulnerability, and even just the hardship of it, as hard as it is to read it, it's got to be exponentially harder to live it. And that is what we've got to break. Absolutely. And, you know, people's just, you know, they seem like it's easy, right? That you could just upskill and then magically you get a job and everything's okay. But, you know, I try to really push and talk about that you have to be in the mindset to upskill. You know, I talked to one mother who was like, went to homeschooling her kids during the day. She worked as like a traveling nurse at night and then, you know, had to cook dinner. She is literally working around the clock, literally. And I was like, how does that work for a mom that's trying to do that? And that's why we've seen so many women leave the workforce. You know, 140,000 women last month. Men, oh. almost the majority were women of color, right? Mm -hmm. And these are women who just, and even when I talk to my friends who make, you know, six, make six figures, they're struggling to stay in the workforce because of all of this unpaid labor that they're being asked to do. And so we do need to tell that story so people understand it's not just this, you know, easy of going online and taking a Coursera course. You know, why don't these lazy people make time to upskill? No, these people are very busy and have complex lives. Yeah. And back to it, their employer is not investing in them that, that way either. So it's all on them in the marg very, very small margins of their life. So I'm um, so glad we're, we're talking about this and lifting this. And we'll certainly link up your Medium blog. I can't wait to get lost I know, in No, I'm really excited to go read that. <laughs> is there a story that sticks out that you would want to share? Maybe it's on the blog or maybe it's just one that you've come across that's, you know, we always love to talk about how philanthropy has impacted us. And there's moments that just stick with us after years of being around impactful stories. What's one for you? So when I, um, as part of my doctoral research, I went out and, and interviewed 40 um, women of color who were working in large foundations. So think Gates, Kellogg, ECMC, et cetera. And one, you know, wanted their advice as a new entrant in going into philanthropy, but just things that I should think about and learn about their experiences. And so one program officer at Kellogg, Tamisha Bridges said to me, she was like, there's just one thing I want you to remember. She was like, you, this is not your money. And by that she meant you may have ideas of how you want to spend the money, but you still have a board and people that you need to build a case for. And, and that's co-investors. And that's been very true what we've done with future work, right? It was about new profit investing, but we couldn't do it alone, right? The $6 million, we're, need, we're needing to raise that from other co-investors who want to go in it with us. And we really had to prove our case. And so, for anyone in working in philanthropy, even if you come across a program officer who liked your program, but ultimately they didn't fund you, just know it's not their money either, right? They have to build a case and go in front of a board. So it doesn't have anything to do with you. So just knowing both sides of that have really helped me. Um, it's helped me be really transparent as a funder 
It's helped me build closer relationships because you know who's in your tribe who are fighting a good fight on your behalf, but understanding that everyone has constraints when you're thinking about philanthropy and just looking at that person across from you is not the gatekeeper. You know, they've got gatekeepers. They've got to build a case for somebody and just understanding that. That, you know, that conversation is one that we got to sit down with Delari Gandhi and she's with the Dell Foundation. And I loved that episode because she broke it down for us in the same way that we're here to partner with you. We want to tell your story on the inside. We, we only view it as a partnership. And I think that that is a message that we definitely want to push out to our community, that it's not us versus them. And that's what I think the theme that I keep seeing in this convo is that you are so much for the greater good. This new work, new profit is so much raising that torch. And I just love that. I love that we need to have more of those kind of thinking and big thinking happening around the industry. One of those topics that you have brought up that I wanted to circle back to is just this idea of unrestricted funding. I think it is not happening much, even though I think the McKenzie you know, Scott gift obviously was this huge, incredible unrestricted giving last year that got a lot of attention. But I think y'all's approach to this and y'all been doing it a long while put so much power on the greater good because you're not managing the micromanagement of small details that you're letting the founder figure out. Would you talk about that? Maybe give us some context around why y'all do it that way. And I just love to lift that conversation. Yeah, so we, we think the point of differentiation in our work is that we're trying to work shoulder to shoulder with founders. Mm. And really, it's any um, time a foundation gives, it's about trust. Do I trust you that you're going to do what you say you're going to do? And if I've said I trust you, then I don't need to really monitor you or handhold because you're the expert in your issue. And that's with, you know, if you think about VC funding and for in the for-profit sector, they want an entrepreneur who can come to them with insights that they don't have. And that's how we look at our entrepreneurs. We feel like they come to us with insights about what they need, how they want to spend their money, how much money they need to raise. We feel like for us, it's to, you know, our best position is to be thought partners. And it's also breaking down that kind of power dynamic where you've got the funder who thinks that they know everything because they're writing a check. It's just not the truth. There are people in our sectors who have dedicated their lives to this issue. And so we would be fooling ourselves if we thought we, we could tell them what to do or how to use their money. The other piece of it is we hope, and I was so glad to do this podcast, is we want to spread this model. You know, really, you know, name what the issue is between funders when and, and what the result is when you give a restricted grant. Like you're, you're really asking nonprofits not to think about their capacity, not to think about their scale, right? What type of staff do you need? How do you pay your people properly, right? So that you can keep them and constantly worrying about the next check instead of giving them space to be creative. And so we give a million dollar bill grant um, that's over four years but literally helping them to be able to think and dream and do the projects that they've wanted to do, but they haven't been able to do it because they're new, they're untried, right? So they keep getting money for the same like programs they've done. And so we wanted to give them risk capital so that they could actually take risk. Like we need people to take risk and go forward with their models. And so one, we wanted to do it, you know, it's like walk the walk. But then two, we want to share these findings, which we do widely with like our other partners in philanthropy. 
I, Bravo, my friend. I just feel like <laughs> that right there, if you want a masterclass on partnerships, that two minutes was it. Why are we going into these conversations saying, can you give me X? You know, that even just the words we're using are wrong. It's like, come and be my partner. Don't don't play in your pond and I'm going to play in my pond and we're going to grab this innovator from their pond. No, we're going to create a pond, one pond, and we want everybody to come in into this space because we're all equally bringing something of value. And I just think nonprofit professionals salivate when they hear unrestricted funding. They truly do. And so I think this model of saying trust, because that's the word that keeps running over in my head, um, is integrity. If you really believe in this nonprofit, if you trust that these professionals, again, to your point, who have spent their lives in the mission sector, if they can do well with your gift, then let's have a collective think tank and let's move it forward and say, because we don't know what's going to happen. You've got to have that risk capital to allow you to dream because there are landmines that we don't know that we're about to walk into. And having that little bit of wiggle room or having that unrestricted component allows us to keep pivoting all the time. And the end product is so extraordinary when you can do that. And so I really think this is a really big mind shift for nonprofits. And I am so glad that you brought this to the community today. Yeah. And I'm glad that you mentioned the word pivot because that's exactly it. Like if a, a nonprofit's doing the same program year after year, like where are they innovating? Yep. Where are they getting better? Right. And so you would expect that they're going to pivot some. And so to make, you know, an entrepreneur feel like, well, if I don't do this, then that means that funder is going to go away. Like that's like the scarcity model. And then we have to move from like charity to justice. Like that's what we all want. It's not giving them something for them. Like they are us, right? Yeah. Yes. They're making the world better for us. Yes. And I think you're lifting that these nonprofits too need to stop being so narrow-minded. I mean, go and share your big, crazy dreams of what you want to do. Nobody wants to invest unrestricted in business as usual. They want to invest in what's going to eradicate the problem or make a huge dent or change things dramatically for the populations you're serving. So we're here for this, Dr. Oh my Jackson. gosh, I <laughs> just think this is such a brilliant conversation. And, and you know, one of our last questions that we love, and I cannot wait to hear how you answer this, is what is your one good thing? Whether it's a piece of advice, a hack uh, that someone, and I would even like maybe put it through the lens of what could a nonprofit professional do today? Yeah, that's, that's really a good one. I'd say a couple things are my hack. And I think they could be people's superpower is really thinking, really thinking about their network um, and thinking how they leverage that. A lot of times when I do these initiatives, people say there's so many people involved. How do you keep track of all of that? But again, I go back to the problems that we're trying to tackle. Like I need to understand where government fits in, right? Because there's billions of dollars that go into workforce. I need to see what philanthropists would like to come in early and de-risk this kind of big, bold idea. I need to talk to people on the ground. So really thinking, you know, and we say this a lot, it's like systems thinking, thinking about your ecosystem, really thinking about what players need to be at the table and not trying to do it all. We can do that because I, I, I can't tell you how many people I've introduced that have, you know, philanthropists have gone on to fund other entrepreneurs or had them on their shows. You know, and I love Delare, who you mentioned was like one who recommended me. And so 
that's what happens when you build community, right? Like you don't have to do it all. It will come to you if you're very clear on what you're doing and who needs to be at the table. Okay. <laughs> John and I There's are looking too at many each mic other. Drop there moments. are. So, okay. How can people find you online? How can we find your medium? How can we get connected with New Profit and just bask in all the goodness happening there? Would you just share a little bit about that? Yeah. So on social, pretty I'm pretty active on Twitter. It's X and then it's Angjack, A-N-G-J-A-C-K. For medium, if you Google, you know, Dr. Angela Jackson medium, it'll pop up. Nice. And then for new profit on all of our social, we're at new profit, N-E-W-P. R-O-F-I-T and and do follow us. Um, you'll see on my Twitter, I really engage with a host of people from innovators to investors to philanthropists who really care about this intersection of profit and purpose and, and thinking about many ways to activate dollars, right? And when I say activate dollars, I'm like thinking about activating government dollars through WIOA, philanthropic dollars individual high net worth individuals like it's going to take an all in and so that you'll hear me talking about that commenting on that and and running what i think would be an ideal world in my opinion okay. you're doing it i mean I, I would just encourage anyone who is interested in this topic go follow dr jackson like follow what she's doing because i have a feeling that you will get to see how this plays out how it's unpacked the pieces and the layers and that in itself is is such a nice you know map to show how you can implement this level of thinking at an extremely high level and i just love the interconnectivity we keep using connectivity in this episode which i really love of delari you know leading to Dr. Jackson that could, you know, impact another person who's listening to this podcast. And I just think the more we have these conversations, the more that we fight for the little guy who needs our heart that he, you know, they need our hustle. These women of color who are leaving the sector. I mean, that is a shocking stat and we should not stand for it. You know, we've got to use our missions to lift up these sectors and do something differently. This is such a great way to do it. And I just really appreciate you coming in and blowing my mind today. <laughs> oh, thank you. It was a pleasure. We appreciate you so much. Have a great week. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening to today's conversation. We hope Dr. Jackson and the work of New Profit has inspired you to open your eyes to the world of venture philanthropy. I hope you hear it in our voices, but we love connecting you with the most innovative people to help you achieve more for your mission than ever before. That's why we'd love for you to join us in the good community. It's free, and you can think of it as the after party for every episode. It's our own social network, a place to meet new friends, find inspiration, and help when you feel stuck. Sign up today at weareforgood.com slash hello. One more thing. If you love what you heard today, would you mind leaving us a podcast rating and review? It means the world and helps more people find this community. Thanks so much, friends. Our production hero is the living legend, Julie Confer. Hello. And their theme song is Sunray by Remy Boersboom. Go rock this week, do-gooders. Rabbit fans have always powered the We Are For Good podcast, but now Rabbit fans can get even more goodness and access by joining Good Friends. It's our listener support community for the We Are For Good podcast. Good Friends comes with perks, exclusive episodes with John and I, including The Good Brief, our new monthly cliff notes of the greatest takeaways and lessons learned from that month, and exclusive AMA episodes where we answer your burning questions and tap our community of experts. Join now or learn more at weareforgood.com backslash friends. We can't wait to see you inside. That's weareforgood.com slash friends.